Hi, and welcome to episode 22 of the Connect podcast. In this episode, we speak with Stan Schneider, CEO of RTI. Stan recently wrote an ebook titled The Rise of the Robot Overlords, clarifying the industrial IoT. In this interview, we talk to Stan about what inspired him to write this ebook. He discusses the state of the industrial IoT market and which technologies companies should consider when building their IIoT systems. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Connext podcast. My name is Cameron. I'm the senior PR manager at RTI. And today I'll be interviewing Stan Schneider, who is the CEO of RTI. Stan, since this is your first appearance on the Connext podcast, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a short bio? Hi, I'm Stan Schneider. I'm the CEO of RTI. I don't know what I do here, but I definitely have fun doing it. Um, a short bio. I was born a very young child. Um, I grew up and got to be an older child. Now I'm an older child. I did a degree in the University of Michigan. My first real technical job was crashing cars. So I got to see firsthand a lot of the carnage on the freeways. We were actually not crashing real cars with people in it, but uh, it was a test lab for biomechanic impact testing at the University of Michigan. And I was all uh, fired up about uh, saving Lots of lives, because back then, 45,000 people a year were dying on the highways in the U.S., and I uh, wanted to make that better. And Unfortunately, last year, 40,000 died, so it hasn't gotten much better. But uh, Now I think we have a real opportunity with autonomy. Long story short, I left that. I ended up at Stanford doing a Ph.D. in aerospace robotics, which now is really autonomous systems, would be called that today. And RTI has uh, sort of been my career and passion since then. We've had three vastly different companies, went from robotics company to a tools company, sold that, and now we're the leading connectivity supplier in the industrial and net of things. So I should also say I'm the vice chair of a big organization called the IIC, Industrial Internet Consortium. It is uh, by far the industry's largest uh, consortium. It has well over 200 companies, and we're trying to build a architecture for the future of smart machines, which I think is great because uh, really going to change everything out there. Excellent. So we're here today to talk about your recent ebook that you wrote, The Rise of the Robot Overlords. And this is the second ebook that you've written on the industrial IoT. Tell us what made you want to write this ebook and how is it different from your first one? Well, we've learned a lot since the first one. That was two whole years ago in this world. Two years is a very long time. Uh, IoT, industrial IoT anyway, is really only about four years old, if that. I, 2014, late 2014 really is when I, I counted as starting. Um, IIC was a big part of that. It was the first place there really was a market. And the first ebook was, in retrospect, I'll call it speculation at the time. It seemed like knowledge and forethought, but some of which worked out, some of which didn't. Uh, one of the things in particular, I had a whole section in there about how to classify different kinds of applications in this new world of smart things. And uh, some of it I think was good. I do think that they are not classifiable very easily by the industries they're in. Uh, so, you know, the medical industry and transportation industry and uh, automotive industry friends all have lots of different problems. They all have classes of problems that need similar solutions, but... It's not like an automotive solution works for everybody or a medical solution, just so many different kinds of applications. So that sort of didn't work out 
uh, that that did work out in the first thing. But we also I thought that the solutions, especially in the connectivity space, were more general back then. You could use lots of different technologies to solve many different kinds of problems. And after studying that for two years with literally dozens of experts and years of time at IIC, I don't think that's true anymore. I think the connectivity technologies, as an example, are very different and the problems they solve are just so different that uh, you really can't compare them. And the real problem is confusion. So I feel a little less confused than I did then. I won't say a lot less, but I think the market in general still is plagued by confusion. So I wrote this book, partially the new book. Uh, the subtitle is Clarifying the Industrial IoT. It's all trying to address uh, the plague of confusion <laughs> and trying to make it a little bit more understandable because uh, confusion just stops everything cold. And tell us what you mean by the rise of the robot overlords. Is this like a zombie apocalypse or no. something we need to prepare for? <laughs> I mean, it's actually a true story. My kid, at 14 at the time, he's 16 now, uh, came home from school with a not-so-great report card. And, you know, I'm a parent. You don't like that. And then, so I said, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And he looked up at me. And it's true. Our dog was there. He looked down at the dog sleeping on the carpet and said, Dad, I, w I want to be a pet of the robot overlords. Um, which at the time was, what do you mean? Like, what a, what a ridiculous ambition. Um, but I figured out, you know, trying to argue with him why he didn't want to be a pet of the robot overlords. By the way, he got the robot overlords from his big brother who was playing some game or something that had that in it. But trying to argue why he didn't want to be a pet of the robot overlords was really hard because I do think that intelligent machines are getting so much better so fast. You know, he's 14 by the time he's, you know, 44 or 54 in the, in the prime years of his career, he'd be foolish not to have a career that takes into account the idea that there's going to be all these very uh, intelligent, capable systems around. That's That's what makes... Everybody does well that sort of predicts the future of technology, and that's a great prediction. So I so, say, you know, eventually I said, well, okay, you want to be a pet of the robot? I can't think of any good reason not to be. It's probably actually a great career ambition, but you want to be a good pet, and you got to do well in school to be a good pet. Um, it was a more convincing argument than I started with, but, you know, he's a teenager. What do you want? And I hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> if it shows up on Reddit, he will. So. <laughs> And I've heard you talk about the implications of this advancement in technology from an economic standpoint, from different standpoints. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the future looks like? Yeah. So first of all, I think the robot overlords are not evil and they're certainly not the zombie apocalypse. They are more like intelligent, beneficial things. Most of it's going to make a huge difference. So I started out with my story of uh, crashing cars and being disappointed with the ability for technology and the technologies in automotive in the last 20 or 30 years are incredible i mean if you actually look at what has gotten better we got multi-stage we had airbags back on multi-stage airbags and side impact airbags and crumple zones and intelligent uh, stability control and anti-lock brakes and you know political things like anti-drunk driving laws and distraction laws and on and on and on and every one of them if you look at the statistics has some meaningful cause of problems on the highway and all of them together only add up to a small percentage of the actual cause of problems because the cause of problems i hate to say 94 percent of all collisions are caused by you 
Um, and uh, autonomous cars, 1.0 is already better driver than you are. And just to clarify, you mean all humans, not just me. <laughs> I mean you, the plural you. Um, 1.0 will be a better driver than you are, and 2.0 will be a better driver than I am. Um, and I like that joke because everybody thinks they're a better than average driver. I, I often give talks and use that joke. I ask people to raise their hand if they think they're a worse than average driver. And surprisingly, there's usually a couple, three that do. But 50% of people are worse than average drivers. That I can prove. Um, <laughs> if they're drivers. And uh, if you have a ticket in the last 20 years, you're a worse than average driver. I think that's a statistic I can't back up, but something like that. Most drivers don't have a ticket, half or something, don't have a ticket in the last 20 years. So, but you know, it just, it's, it needs to be fixed. That is going to get better. And you think, well, okay, that's autonomous drive is going to get rid of a lot of the collisions. I do believe that's going to happen. But if it's not just that, if you look at medical systems, errors in hospital are hugely problematic, third leading cause of death in the United States. Um, you know, everybody knows the renewables are really a great future for the power grid, but they just aren't manageable. They, they change too fast for today's stupid system. So you've heard of the smart grid. We don't have a smart grid. What we have is the stupid grid. And the stupid grid can't deal with renewables. They, they change their output too fast. They're what's called dirty power. Um, so you can't really have that much of it and really expect the grid to be reliable anymore. But, you know, smart, intelligent things, the robot overlords, can make all of those things better and many, many other things. If you actually look at what RTI does, you know, almost all of our applications are taking some kind of intelligence to make it smarter, uh, connecting it to physics speed sensors and actuators and things and that you might call a robot if you want to call it a robot. Some of them are obvious robots like a medical robot, but some of them might not be quite so obvious robots like an automatic uh, grid balancing algorithm that can turn on and off the gates in a hydropower dam and thereby balance the grid faster than people could do it or groups of people could do it. That really also is a robot. It doesn't look like a robot. It looks like this big massive concrete structure, but it is autonomously able to do things with intelligence that wouldn't be easy to do for people to do. And that kind of technology can make so many things better. It's, it's hard to list them. It's just on and on and on in transportation and medical and Drilling for oil and, uh, you know, managing underwater things so we don't have another deep water horizon problem in controlling quality of water and quality of life in 200 different areas. Uh, it's just an immense opportunity. Uh, it's great to be part of that. So that's the robot overlords. If I can keep going, you also asked about the impact on employment. Everybody's worried. Actually, I've got to get a hold of this this presentation. I saw a great presentation with a list of all the things that were going to put everybody out of work. One of them I remember was it had a, a picture of an elevator with an operator in it and a quote from somebody's like, you know, 1890 or something. It said, you'd be crazy to get into an elevator without an operator in it. And when they have automated elevators, it's going to put, you know, thousands and thousands of people out of work. And you know, automobile was supposed to put everybody out of work and computers are going to put everybody out of work. Every technology comes along, it's going to put everybody to work. And it's actually been true. If you look at, you know, what computers have done, they put a lot of travel agents, you go to an airport, there used to be all these people checking people in, now they're just kiosks. 
there's not very many people in the horse industry anymore. Um, it's been wiped out. But that doesn't mean everybody's out of work. They're just doing something else. But you, what are they going to do is a completely unanswerable question. Even if I knew, I couldn't explain it to you any more than you could explain to me when I was in high school what a back-end service engineer does at Facebook. Because there was no network. There was no internet. There was no social media. You, you could never explain that, right? It's just something that you have to see how it goes. I don't think humans are in any immediate danger of being obsolete. And a lot of other people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk are saying artificial intelligence, put everybody out of work. I think that's way out there. Far enough out that you know, maybe your kids' kids should worry about it, but probably not. And if we're really out of work and we have robot overlords, we can be pets. It's not so bad. My dog's pretty happy. <laughs> and let's talk more about autonomous vehicles or car bots, as you call them. Um, how'd you come up with that name, by the way? Honestly, I it drove me nuts. So autonomous vehicles is just too many syllables. You know me, I hate extra syllables. I think, you know, there are times when you have to put commas into things, but the AP style guide says not to. But syllables always cause things to be harder to understand. So Tano's vehicle is okay with, you know, it's, it's a long mouthful to say. Um, Self-driving cars is horrible. That's just like, you know, horse, uh, horseless carriage. As soon as the technology proves itself at all, who's going to call a car today a horseless carriage? And I actually sat down and said, I need something short. can't be uh, more than two syllables. And I took all the syllables, and I was just trying to procrastinate one day. I wrote down all the combinations. Carbot came out. I said, okay, I'll call it Carbots. I've been trying to push that ever since, uh, not necessarily successfully. <laughs> I hear a lot of car companies calling it, you know, just robots but or robot cars, but, uh, you know. And I know you talk about them a lot in the ebook. You have that whole section on car bots or autonomous vehicles as an example of this type of technology. Why did you choose to feature autonomous vehicles as the main application there? And what are the highlights people should take away from that section? Three reasons. First of all, everybody understands how a car works and what it has to do. It's just not true for the power grid or a you know, ventilator, respirator system in a hospital. So everybody sort of understands what the problem is. Everybody understands intuitively how hard that problem is and why you need, you're really going to do it autonomously, how, how, what the challenge is. Everybody understands why it's valuable, right? It's pretty easy to do. And it's a hot market and lots of interest and tons of money flowing into it. And on the uh, cusp of being really valuable, I think you're going to see really usable car bots out there really soon, a year, two years. Um, they'll be expensive. They'll be robo-taxis, not something you can buy, but they'll be out there in volume not long at all from now. And flying ones aren't far behind. Simpler, less intelligent ones that can do what's called level three autonomy, which is on a freeway, like what Tesla has, only you know a little more autonomous, will also be out there. You can buy those. That'll be probably cheap enough to buy already out there in a lot of ways. Right. So let's get into what I would call the meat of your ebook, where you talk about the guide to IoT connectivity. You talked about it a little bit at the beginning. Um, and it feels like every day we hear of a new technology that's connecting different devices and systems in the IoT and industrial IoT. So how do you approach this 
topic to help companies find the right solution. Can you go through what you cover in the ebook in that section? Well, first of all, I think the IoT is just humongously big. It's the future of all technology, really. So you can't talk about it as a single thing. Um, I think there's really three categories of applications. I call them spheres of applications in the book. I mean, they're whole universes of applications. They really don't have a lot to do with each other today. Um, and, and they really, they are, you know, device monitoring, um, which I think of everything connectivity is the simplest. It has a single device, typically talking to a single cloud service, and that's all it does. And, you know, the entire consumer internet of things fits into that. So it's a very big sphere. So Nest thermostats and ring doorbells and, uh, you know, smart locks for your house and Fitbits and everything you could go buy in a store that has intelligence in it that people call the Internet of Things. They're all really single devices talking to a single cloud service for the simple reason that you don't have a lot of reasons for the devices to talk to each other. Your Fitbit doesn't need to open your door so you can get in. Maybe someday that would make sense, but it's just not a driving application. Uh, industrial has those things too. They're usually for things like predictive maintenance where you've got some motor and you don't want it to fail and you you want to predict when it's going to fail so you can send a service there for a person there to fix it ahead of time so it's going to have some kind of you know vibration sensors or acoustic sensors or heat sensors in it and that's going to go up to the cloud service and it's going to analyze that thing and decide hey you need to fix that motor in your air conditioner before you take out the entire building's air conditioner for a week so go replace that um but you know from my point of view as a rti's point of view I mean, we we aren't that interested in it it's just not not a hard enough connectivity problem. Um, and there's a whole class of technology to do. It's a hard problem, don't get me wrong. There's lots of classes of technology with analytics and um, connectivity to get to the cloud and cloud IoT platforms. There's over 400 IoT platforms. They're all very different. Some of them live in completely different spaces. So the second class, um, which is really exciting to a lot of the industrial space because it immediately impacts OPEX without changing OPEX operational expenses, makes things more efficient without changing anything fundamental inside it. And that's like you take a plant or a big oil pipeline, you put sensors all over it, you collect all that data, and you get it up to the cloud and you run it through some analytics and figure out that, hey, I'm... I could be generating more electricity on this plant if I ran these parameters a little differently, or I could make more money from my plant if I ran the, the curing oven side of it at 3 p.m. when the power is cheaper than if I ran it at 10 a.m. when the power is more expensive. And you can optimize what's going on in the system based on all this data analysis. And typically, all that data flows one way, has a lot of sensors that all are related to each other, um, not a lot of actuation or control or anything flowing back down it's mostly just analyzing it and maybe people changing how it works even changing what time they're in the shifts or something it's you know we call that analytic optimization because and it's a huge class of things too um, and the third one which i think is much more exciting frankly is we call edge autonomy I'm not a big fan of the word edge but it does get the idea it's not about the cloud it's about lots of different things outside of a data center doing something smart. Um, so autonomous car is an obvious example, but all the things I've been talking about, you know, smart medical systems, smart power systems, uh, being able to do a, autonomous uh, automatic drilling for oil and thereby not taking the risk of damaging the water table um, and doing it more efficiently, 
you know, going down and checking for uh, problems with the, the blowout preventer, which is what caused the uh, Deepwater Horizon problem. You know, you can analyze that, figure out this. But all these things require lots of different pieces all working together, typically in real time. Real time means fast enough to uh, affect the real world. That we call edutonomy. That's the really smart systems out there. Over time, I, you know, these things sort of grow together, I think, but we're early, early, early decades of this whole evolution. Um, smart things are going to be around as long or longer than electricity, still finding new applications for them. We still find new applications for electricity every day, like that uh, iPhone over there, right? That's not that old of a, of a new application electricity, so it's interesting stuff. And so what's your approach for how companies in those different spheres should select their connectivity solution? So connectivity solutions come in lots of different flavors. Um, the flavors are so different, you can't mix them together. You, know, you, you can't take a wine and mix it with a beer and mix it with a 7-Up and expect it to be, well, maybe 7-Up you could. You can't mix <laughs> these things together and expect something good to come out of them because they're actually quite different. And... You know, what we found is it's it, these, the, the connectivity solutions target applications in vastly different ways. And they're so different, I can ask a few really simple questions and very quickly put most applications by most, you know, 80, 90% of applications into one of the spheres. And you're done very quick. And they're, and they're questions like, do you know what ICT stands for? Um, which is an entire industry, you know, communications technology. It's the, it's the telecom industry. If you don't know what it stands for, you probably shouldn't be using the architecture designed for telecom, right? Something called 1M to M. Do you know what a work cell is? Uh, we're in the DDS space. We have thousands of projects out there. The last users group meeting, I asked people in the room if they ever heard of a work cell. A couple of them are, that are on the borders of working with these things, I heard about 99% or more of... DDS applications don't go into factory work cells. OPC UA, people think it's similar, but 99% of them are in work cells or something close to work cell. Almost everybody in that world can tell you what a work cell is. A work cell, by the way, is a little factory thing where you're going to put a bunch of stuff together with some conveyor belts and whatever. It's you know where you would sit there. If you were a human, just assemble one little part of the thing. Um, it's how all discrete manufacturing is built out of work cells. So it's really, you know, you answer those just a few questions like that. You can put yourself into, I belong in this galaxy, this big chunk of the world. And then you can figure out if it's really going to work for you. And most applications will work with the current standard. I don't think we have a shortage of standards. We have a shortage of understanding what they do. And eventually they need to work together. And the thing the ISC did is make them all work together much better or have a design to have them work together, which we're now implementing. So let's talk about security. I know that's another hot topic in the IOT space, and you also discuss it in your ebook. Um, how do you recommend that companies who are developing industrial IOT systems handle security? My experience is security is not a change driver, and the security people are going to be mad at me for that statement. But if you look at a real system out there, and by that, by what I mean by that is, if you look at a real system out there that's running today, it's got an architecture, it's got lots of stuff going on in it, if you have to change that architecture to get better security, 
it's hard to ever make that. You can make that argument to your, you know, oh, it's good. It could be attacked. It could blow up. It could, all these kind of things could happen to it. But because those things hopefully haven't happened and mean never until they really do happen, it's not a good enough argument to see that happen. On the other hand, all these other things I've been talking about are very much change drivers. Autonomy in cars, fixing the medical error problems, integrating renewables into the power grid. Those are change drivers and nobody is going to implement those things without security. So security is very much a change gate. You can't do these new applications without having the security all everything i talked about is is has to be secure and i actually think despite all of the people worrying that the security connecting things to the internet you know opens up all sorts of attack vectors and now you're online you can be hacked but nobody does that without doing a security audit and uh, there's just it's shocking if you go talk to today's plants and power systems and stuff. They just aren't very sophisticated in security. So act, the act of getting online forces a thought about security much deeper than they've had in previous decades. And so I actually think security is getting better, not worse. Um, I do think once you choose an architecture, you need to go make sure that architecture is secure. Security should be part of the architecture, not a bolt-on to the architecture. I'm a real big fan of data centricity. Data centricity is an incredible technology. Um, data centricity databases are data centric storage. The entire planet runs on databases today. There's not a company or a government or significant application that doesn't have a database in it somewhere because it allows you to have a data-centric view of the world where you are working with the database, even though there might be like 5,000 other people or application working in the database. You don't care about that. You just see the data. Um, DDS and RTI's technology, we call it data bus. It's a similar concept, um, except instead of a database, it's always stored information. You've stored the part, part numbers for the cars or the HR information for your employees or whatever. Um, a data bus is about finding data in the future and finding it fast enough you can do something about it. So I'm going to find, if I'm an autonomous vehicle, I'm going to find everything that's going to maybe hit me in the next half a second. Or I even, even I'm going to find sensor values to balance this wind farm uh, phase across all the different wind turbines, you know, in a hundredth of a second or even faster than that. You know, it, it can find exactly the right information, but it's a future thing. It's looking for events that might happen in the future or even just, you know, repetitive things in the future. It's a really powerful concept. But if you can secure that, just like you can secure a database, if you use a database, I mean, you're probably using a database right now, I don't know where you're recording this, <laughs> um, but, you know, people are very used to going online and using a database and expecting it. You just assume it's secure, right? You don't, you don't worry about whether your access, your customer database on uh, an Oracle somewhere in Salesforce or something is going to be accessible by somebody else because they hacked it. And that's because that's really hard to do because Oracle or Salesforce has built that security right into the database. And it's a fundamental part of the database. And it's actually not easy to hack because usually you have to understand the database you're hacking in order even to attack it. We have the same kind of features with the industrial real world thing is very difficult to attack a data centric system without an awful lot of very deep knowledge and even if you do you're only going to be able to attack one little part of the data flow and some of these systems have 
We have one system with 10 million independent data flows. You aren't going to hack 10 million things. You know, you can hack a few of them. Maybe you can find something critical, but it's a lot harder than just hacking into a network and now taking over that network and logging in, being root on lots of machines or something. So uh, some of the technologies actually used for the architectures that are changing the way the world works are naturally protectable with integrated security. And those things are really, I think, that's the way to go with security. Uh, DDS security, for instance, doesn't even have a, you know, you're not a programmer. That doesn't even have an API. Some of our our listeners are. Some of you. So it doesn't even have an API. So it's not like you have to write a lot of code to implement security. There's no API. There's no code to write. You don't even get to write code. You do have to have certificates and provision those certificates and all that kind of stuff. But it handles all of that and protects the data itself rather than the networks or the processors. I'm not saying we don't also need to protect the networks and the processors and firewalls. I mean, absolutely, you want to have multiple layers of security called security in depth, but we can offer a level of security that is really hard to do with more traditional techniques. And I think that's really powerful. So if there was one thing that you wanted people to take away from reading your ebook, what would it be? Maybe the last chapter. Uh, um, historians will look back at our time and, and wonder how we got by without smart things. I, mean, I don't know when the last time you wondered how people got by without electricity or cars or motors. Um, it's just part of everyday life. It's unbelievable positive change to the quality of life of people to have these really base technologies. Smart things really are that kind of a technology that we just haven't had the capability of doing, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, even today, we really have very, very primitive, smart things. Um, but there are huge change to the way things work. And, you know, the reason for the robot overlords, the robot overlords are, are, are beneficial overlords. They're going to make the world better. I mean, it starts out in the book. If you have kids or you're about to have kids, your kids are not going to drive. They're not going to write. They're not going to compose music. Um, I mean, at least they won't have to. Not like I'm very good at composing music anyway, but there's already intelligent systems that are capable of at least challenging most humans' capabilities in those areas, and maybe not the, the brilliant people, but the few exceptions. Uh, all of those things are going to be able to, you know, we'll be able to do those with technologies at levels that are uh, very, very capable. Um, so your kids will live in uh, a world where they won't drive and maybe not have to write or compose music, but they'll be in a world that's safer and healthier and cleaner and much more efficient. And, you know, history shows as technology gets better, quality of life goes up in general. Um, I think we've come a long ways in the last uh, 500 years, and the next 500 years is going to be amazing. Next five years is going to be amazing. I can't wait. Okay, last question, Stan. Do you have any plans for a third ebook? My marketing people won't let me stop writing. Um, I love writing, so I'll admit it. Sure, I'll do another ebook. I mean, usually I write a lot of papers. My ebooks are really compendiums, I suppose, of the papers I've written over 
the last year or so, and it always takes me a lot longer to get it done than I thought. But sure, I I, I need to go out and start finding other things. Lots of stuff to write about out there. It's just an incredible world of new applications. I'd probably write one on all the new kinds of applications we're seeing out there. It's just shocking every day. It's 2020, we're going to have uh, flying robo-taxis. Actually, it's possible, at least in tests. Autonomous cars are going to be everywhere. Hyperloops, uh, medical systems that are vastly more efficient. Robotics that can find things in your body that don't require cutting you open. Um, you know, it's really uh, an amazing moment in history that we live in. There's always more and more stuff going on, but it just seems like there's a lot more going on right now than there was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's just a real fascinating instant in time. So I'll find something to write about. Excellent. So I think that's it. Thank you very much for your time, Stan. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Connect podcast. Stay tuned for part two of our interview with Sonder Mertens, where we continue our discussion on performance and its relation to statistics. Also, look out for a twist at the end of the episode where we turn the tables and interview the host. If you have any questions or suggestions for future interviews, please be sure to reach out to us either on social media or at podcast at rti.com. Thanks and have a great day.